Welcome to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. My name is John Sikotowski. I'm one of the hosts here on Engage and Equip. And in this episode, you're gonna hear from lead pastor Nick Gibson during the most recent Engage and Equip Live. During this talk, he talked about encouragement and then specifically about the portion of encouragement that is practicing affirmation towards other people. He talked about how encouragement really makes up the central portion of what we're supposed to do in ministry and how practicing affirmation in the people that we lead and in the people that we minister to is an important part of doing that ministry of encouragement. So take a listen. Hey everyone, we did contemplate going outside to get a different speaker for this topic, um, but oh, so one of the things uh, that I think of as a pastor a lot is, um, you know, what is universally human that the gospel speaks to? What are we all, right? And as I was thinking about this topic, I thought, and if you think about human beings and what we all are. What's one of the most inspiring things I could think of that relates to this topic about what's true of like every human, individually and together? We are, what? What would you say? We're made in God's image. We're God's creation. Okay, great. Those are great. Okay, so here's what I thought of. What so was there another one? We like to be heard. Yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, so, he, so here's what I came up with. We are quitters. Like, like, we're just quitters. Human beings are quitters. We just quit all the time. We just quit stuff. We just, we try things. They're hard. We just quit. It's, it's, it's very broad. And so, like, even in TV shows and films, like, they have, you know, like, what happens when somebody quits a romance? This is, like, in every TV show. You have this couple who's dating. They're like, we're so in love. And then something goes wrong, and they quit. And then the other ones, one of them's like, no, I really love them. And they're already in a gender closet with somebody else. Like, it's, they're quitters. They, right? And in the Bible, you see this constantly. What is the Bible full of? It's not full of Jewish people hearing from God and then being philosophically persuaded that God doesn't exist. That's not what happens. They get the Torah. God reveals himself to them. He does all kinds of stuff for them, and they complain and quit. That's what they do. They just are like, I'm not doing this. I'm doing something else. And so this isn't, I think this is really important to understand about human nature. And I, I don't think you can understand the importance and centrality of encouragement in the Bible until you realize that one of the things that is so that is just absolutely at the heart of human beings, one of the things that marks us as much as the fact that we are rational creatures or something like that, is that we are quitters. In fact, I would I would wager that more human beings could accurately be described as quitters than as rational creatures. Right. And so, um, this is a theme in the Bible too, even in the New Testament. So in the New Testament, in this passage, in 2 Timothy, you see both quitting and the redemption of quitting and the only non-quitter in a group of a lot of people, right? So in this one, it says, Paul's writing to Timothy. This is his last letter, right? He says, do your best, Timothy, to come to me quickly for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Thessalonica is a really nice Greek city on the Greek Mediterranean, the hummus there is very smooth, okay? And which is a lot nicer than hanging out 
and taking care of Paul's needs while he's in a Roman prison, right? Um, Christians has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Assumingly, both people were sent there by Paul. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus, right? So John Mark, the Mark who he wants to bring, is the same John Mark who earlier in Acts, he said, I don't want him on the trip with us because he quit the first time. Because the first time on the first missionary journey, it was Barnabas, Paul, and John Mark. And then John Mark quit, didn't keep going, right? Now, if you read very carefully all of the like fam- familial relationships in the book of Acts, it appears as though one of John Mark's family members died, maybe his father. Because it seems later that his mother might be a widow. And Barnabas is a relative of his, which also explains why he bet on him the second time. But this on the second missionary journey, Barnabas says, we should take John Mark with us. And, he, and Paul's like, we're not taking no John Mark with us because John Mark quit halfway through. And I'm not traveling internationally where people want to kill us with a guy I can't count on. And so Barnabas is like, well, then fine. Then you and I aren't going together, right? And it says they had such a sharp disagreement, which usually includes cussing, but it doesn't explicitly say. But it's like the, one of the only places, it's like the sharpest relational separation in the New Testament. And they're like, we're not, ha-, and so they go different ways, which turns out to be great for the gospel because the gospel goes to twice as many places. But Barnabas takes Mark, and that's when Silas gets taken on board. Like, Silas is like, I mean, he's like having a beer over here in the pub, and Bar- Bar- Paul's like, I'm fine, you take Mark, I'm taking Silas. And Silas is like, what, what's, what's happening? <laughs> right? And so off Paul and Silas go, and then he picks up Timothy, and off that all goes. But at the very end of Paul's life, Mark has now, over several years, demonstrated he's not a quitter. Or maybe he was, and he learned from it. But part of, the, part of the thing, like, if you read this passage and really study all the different people and what we know about them, it'll bring you to tears because Demas is mentioned in Colossae, in Colossians and in Philemon as this faithful person that they know. He may be from the Lycus River Valley. That's that place where Colossae and Heriopolis and Laodicea are. And then he came into Paul's group. And so when he wrote to this church that he'd never known, he like says, this guy, Demas is with us. And like, you guys probably know him and because he's named by name, right? And so he has this track record. And yet something, like something crept in. And instead of like sticking with the gospel all the way to the end, he's like, man, I'm going, I'm going to the coast. And Paul says like the easiest way to summarize what happened to Demas was he loved this world. But what it means is he quit. Like something happened with him. And this is a guy who had a multiple year track record and, and Paul didn't, Paul didn't get into his entourage, no dummies. Like, he selected people who he thought were very godly and were made of flint. And he gets to the end of his life and he's like, Luke's the only guy with me now. Does that make sense? And so it's, it's important to recognize that, like, we're quitters, man. If you're a human being, it, your nature is that you're a quitter, right? And that's partly because the, all of the biggest fights of human life happen inside of you. They're all, like, with your past and your future and your present and your wounds and your and your insecurities and your wondering and are you going to be included and is this going to happen and how's that going to turn out and you realize that you're vulnerable and and you, there's all kinds of anxieties that are perfectly rational right and so the gospel has to speak to and the people of God have to minister to these great wars inside of us Right? And, and for some of you, it may be really simple things. 
like it, it may just be you're, you feel discouraged in your relationship with Jesus. But for some of you, it's like my marriage isn't going well. It could be like, you know, you're working with minority kids in a school and they feel like the system's against them and it just discourages them. It could be business owners like in their, they're like in their third year and they're wondering if this thing's ever going to turn around to make a profit. Like almost all of us have something in our life and we just, we just don't know if we can make it go. We've done just about everything we know to do and it doesn't seem to be doing what we want it to, right? And so in the Bible, there is this kind of like phraseology that shows up again and again that is kind of like one of the, like the, one of the theological old words we don't use anymore. But there's a number of words that Christians have mostly stopped using and they've replaced with other words that are sufficiently, significantly inferior, right? Um, the word community is inferior to the word fellowship. Um, now, most people don't think so because where the word fellowship ended is worse than the, where the word community began. But if you track fellowship back to like the writings of J.R.R. Tolkien, that concept of absolute union to go, go into the very depths of hell together, that that's what fellowship meant. It meant covenantal bonding that could not be broken except by betrayal. That's different than what we mean by community, right? I mean, yeah, yeah you're drinking, you're, you're drinking sexier coffee, and it's in a tumbler instead of a styrofoam cup, right? And you've got like hanging lights from an unfinished ceiling instead of like fluorescent lights from a hung ceiling. Like I get it. It's so different, okay? But there are certain words that like we need to kind of get a hold of. And then if we want to retranslate them for other people, then fine. And, w- and the, one of the words that Christians always used to use was, was, was the word edification, okay? And it simply means b- like building a building like a builder, Like you're pounding stuff together or you're putting down masonry and you're stacking bricks and over the course of time in a deliberate way you are taking something that is not there and you are building it up into this useful structure. You're forming something that wasn't into something that is, right? And that language is is strung all throughout the New Testament, right? Let's, we're going to read a few of them. Oh, sorry. This is the point I was going to make. You know, a lot of people think that the way people lose their faith is because they get philosophically or mentally convinced that it's false. That's not what happens. Okay? Even people who tell you they were mentally convinced that it was false, what happens is they get discouraged, and then their thinking becomes very emotional in their depression. And in the emotionality of their depressed thinking, they have all kinds of, like, not very helpful thoughts spinning around. And in trying to make sense of their depression and why things aren't going the way it should, and in their discouragement, they start thinking thoughts that affirm their discouragement. Like that Jesus isn't real and maybe there's nothing to this and the church is just a bunch of hypocrites and blah, 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 blah. But it's not really the fruit of new thinking and it's not really the fruit of demonic philosophy even. It's really the fruit of discouragement. Right? Okay. And yet, I think what the Bible teaches is that and you could say, and I don't make very many unequivocal statements. Like usually there's like five caveats to every statement I make. But I think you can legitimately say, especially on the basis of Ephesians 4, 11 to 13, that encouragement is our biggest biblical job in ministering. And serving one each other, to one, one another and ministering to one another, you could say our biggest job is encouragement or you could say the work of edification to be more holistic. So we could go through a few of these examples. 2 Corinthians 13.10. 
This is why I write these things when I'm absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in, in the use of my authority, right? Well, right? He has the authority of an apostle to be mean if he's got to be mean to help them. And he says this, but this is the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. So he's writing to the Corinthians. The Corinthians are behaving very badly, right? And he's like, hey, you guys, why don't you just repent? I'll write you a letter. You repent reading it. And then when I come there, I can, we can all have a really nice time. So I don't have to come and keep rebuking you for like sleeping with prostitutes and suing people you're in business with and like and then and then I can spend all my time positively encouraging you but I have this authority that I'm going to use but whether I'm being critical of you or whether I'm being affirming of you this authority was given to me so that you would be built up right 129 just a chapter earlier we've been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ sight of, of God as those in Christ and everywhere, and everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. That's the NIV translation. It's that word, upbuilding or edification. Everything we do. Do you see the, the idea here? Wh- whether it's preaching or church discipline or worship or prayer or anything. What he's saying is everything that we do falls under the rubric of building you up. Everything we do is encouragement, right? And I mean encouragement not in the figurative sense, but in the little literal sense. Encouragement is the opposite of discouragement. Discouragement is the leaking out of courage. It's the thing that saps your heart's strength, the force of your will, your willingness to stand up and do what needs to be delivered in your life. And encouragement isn't flattery. It isn't puff talk. Encouragement is saying what somebody needs to be refilled with courage, which people require because we're quitters, right? 2 Corinthians 10, a couple chapters earlier. For even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than pulling you down, I won't be ashamed of it. Right? So he's even, that's just a side point. He's just stuck in there. In 1 Corinthians 14, at the end of that book, he says, What shall we say then, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. Same word for the edification, for the building up of the church. So he's saying, like, if you look at this room, and we all have different gifts, right? You're all going to go to different breakout sessions. We all do different things, right? What, he, what he's saying there is he's like, yeah, you may come to church at some time this month to do something, and you may cook, or you might vacuum, or you might preach, or you might mentor, or you may play music. He's like, all of those things, here's what unites them all. They're all united in, the, in Christ and in the gospel. And they're actually all united in their function, too, not just in their source. They all come from the source of Christ. They're all empowered by the Spirit, but they all really do have the same function, which is edification, the building up of other people in Christ. Right? Look at Romans 15.1. Again, see, notice how these are all at the end of the epistles. He's like written a whole epistle. At the end, he's like, wait, let's not miss this point. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up, to edify him. For even Christ did not please himself, but it's written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Right? So he's saying everything that's done is done for the strengthening of others. Romans 14, 19 says, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to Mutual edification or the building of each other up. In Ephesians 2, 19 to 31, there's three mentions in Ephesians, right? He says, consequently, you're no longer foreigners or aliens, but fellow citizens of God's people and members of God's household. 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises up to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being edified, being built together to become somebody's head in which God lives, a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Right? And then the next chapter, he's clarifying it more. And he says, it was he that is Christ, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. What? To prepare God's church for works of service so that, now notice, he saves edifying for the whole church. He says these five ministry offices prepare, in a sense, they instill craftsmanship in all the believers so that the believers so, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of Christ. For in him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting lig- ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work, right? So as each person does its work, we are building ourselves up. Do you see how that's, that's moderately sacrilegious because Jesus is building his church, right? But functionally speaking, what he's saying is when, in, in according to the gospel, through unity, empowered by the craftsmanship of learning how to do ministry, as the Spirit works through us, we are, we are charged with and we are building ourselves up. You see, the point of that is not to say we don't need Jesus. The point of that to say is it's your job to build each other up. You are building up the church. In Christ. Christ is, Christ is building his church, but you are building it. And you are building it through edification. You are building it through the ministry of encouragement in whatever form. So one of the things that you can think about is you, you can say, I'm doing job X at high point. In what way is my ministry a ministry of encouragement, of edification? In what way is what I'm doing, its function is to build other people up. And if you think that through and you work that out, you're going to do whatever you're doing right. Because that's what it is. Whatever you're doing, what it is, is a form of edification, right? Does that make sense? Okay. See, there's, there's kind of a lot of these verses, right? Don't let any, any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ, just as in Christ God forgave you. So he connects it here to the gospel of why we can do all these things and get rid of all this stuff. But you notice the purpose? The purpose is you should be doing only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs. And because that's what you're doing on the basis of Christ, you can't talk unwholesomely and you can't have rage and bitterness and anger and brawling and slander because we're here to build each other up. We're here for edification. That's our job. That's what we're all doing, right? All right. Now, there are a number of types of encouragement. So, for example, I could, I could try to encourage Sharon without it saying anything about Sharon in particular. I could just say, Sharon, Jesus died for us. Like, no matter what happens to us, we're going to heaven. And, like, 
she got Jesus chose you in eternity past to belong to him and no matter what happens everything will work for your good for those who are called like I can I can tell her all kinds of truths that actually have little to do with anything she chooses to do or not do right that are external and objective to her and they could really encourage her she could be like hey that's right I feel so much better but I didn't say Sharon you did such a great job I saw you working with those kids and you were so focused on them and listening to what they said you could really tell that you were there for them and you were serving them just like Christ serves us do you see how those things are different they're both encouragement but one of them is affirmation and one of them is confession right one of them is confessing what's true in the in the presence of others who believe it Right? That's why the church used to profess creeds in church. They would stand up and they'd say what they all believed together. Right? There's, there's a lot of power in that. That's a good thing to do. Right? People don't think it's cool or whatever. But there's a lot of power in us all getting up and saying we all believe the same thing and we all know that it's going to happen. We all know what God has done. We all know what God has promised us. And we all know it together. Right? But most people know that's right. And there's a lot of Christians, especially at theologically robust churches, that already believe that. And they believe that we should encourage each other and strengthen each other with truths, right? And that is right, and that's right. But that cannot be in any way a meaningful substitute for affirming people, okay? Um, I am not known for being terribly good at this. That is not going to stop me from saying what I think is right about it, Okay. So what affirmation is, is the proper praise of people, okay? The word praise is selected very, in, 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 oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Intentionally there, right? It's the praise of people, right? And I know we normally, when we use the word praise, usually God comes after it, and that's right. And affirmation is the praise of people. Now, sometimes affirmation is well understood when that virtue is put next to its closest vice, Okay? So, I'm going to give you a definition of affirmation and define it in such a way as which it cannot be flattery, okay? So this is how I would define affirmation. Affirmation is a statement which serves another, praises a good in them for their edification, and simultaneously glorifies God. So Christian affirmation is a statement which serves another, praises a good in them for their edification, and simultaneously glorifies God, okay? So, first, it serves them, that is, it's for their good and not a form of manipulation or to ingratiate ourselves or to manipulate their behavior or loyalties. That's flattery. So when you speak, you're not trying to get them to like you more or for you to be like, it's not, it's not virtue signaling. I'm a nice person. I'm always positive. You can always trust me to be positive. So you can't say anything negative to me because I only say positive things to other people right? It's not that. It's not self-protection. It's not virtue signaling, and it's not flattery. I'm going to say nice things to you, so you need to say nice things to me or do things for me. Affirmation is always in service of the other person. You get nothing. It's for them. Do you understand? Two is it praises them. That it not only points out a good, it gives praise and honor to that good. So you're not just saying, you know, um, aren't you listening attentively? Or like, it, I really, I, it's really great to see your kids because they just seem at peace. And that says something about your household, right? But you, you gotta say, you gotta be like, 
I, it's just that, that they, they radiate with something that's going on well in your house. And, and I, I want to, like, you must be doing something great parenting behind closed doors or something like that. I, but you, you need to not just say, hey, that thing is good. You need to praise and honor and give a certain amount of adoration to that good. Or it is not really affirmation. Because people are always wondering, like, how much pleasure to take in it. And they're always a little terrified about letting pride enter in or whatever. And when you praise them and you take pleasure in honoring them, they can take, they can receive it and receive the equal pleasure that you give them and then let it be. If they are, are busy adoring themselves on the basis of what they think ought to be given to them, then they're, it's much more likely they're going to get swirled around in pride. Does that make sense? So it's, it, it, it includes praise in them. That is, it's something about, it's something in that person that they feel is part of who they are or what they did. So if I say, Aaron, image of God's looking great on you tonight, right? Like that, that's not really affirmation, right? That everybody has the image of God. He always bears the image of God. He didn't do anything like special to have that, right? But if I say something like, hey, I saw you doing your job today and the way you were doing it, I saw you embodying the image of God in every bit, every detail. You were conscientious about everything you did from beginning to end and I could see that and you weren't doing a sexy ministry job. You were just doing a normal job but you were trying to enrich other people's lives as much as you could and I could see it in just how you acted and how you looked at people and how you thanked them, right? That's different because now I'm saying he's doing something with the image of God out of faith. Does that make sense? And that's about him and what he's doing, which I know feels dangerous because it feels like praising men and saying there's something good in them. And look, listen, I, I want to say I'm as Calvinist as the next guy, and I think I actually am. But like this is the, the Bible says stuff like this. Like it says, like when the angel shows up to Mary, he doesn't, Gabriel doesn't say, like blessed are you because God unconditionally elected you before the foundations of the world and you aren't special. Like he was like, you're really highly favored, and this is great, and, it, and you're, you're supposed to get the idea that, like, she's great, right? Like, it literally says in the story of Jabez, for example, he was more honorable than all his brothers. There's stuff said about Abigail when she comes to David and humbles herself and averts bloody chaos, that she did something noble and great. Like, there are numerous times in the Bible in which human being, like, un explicitly positive, unguarded statements of praise are given to the actions of human beings. And we are supposed to know and understand, bound up in that, that the grace of God, the work of God is active in that. Does that make sense? Okay. It's edification that it's, it's intended to build them up, to increase their passion for growth, and to give them courage in their pilgrimage. So you, need to th you should think of affirmation as fuel, right? Like this person is on a pilgrimage, and they're on this hike, and they're sweating, and they're carrying a backpack— and it's not easy to follow Jesus. And so you can even think of it in terms of like Hebrews chapter 12 where they're running this race after Jesus and they're trying to throw off everything, the sin that entangles them and everything that distracts them. And you're like, you're the Gatorade kid, okay? So they're running after Jesus and you've got that little cup of Gatorade and you're like, baby, you need some electrolytes and you're holding it out to them and they're going to run by and they're just going to grab that thing and they're going to drink it and they're going to throw it and that's like, oh, that's all you get for two miles, right? And so what you, the affirmation we give people is fuel to not quit. So when you think, what can I say? How can I have a ministry of affirmation right now? And you're looking around you to, to ambush somebody with some affirmation. And, and you're like, okay, 
should I just, I can say something nice about them. Yes, say something nice about them and praise it, but make it fuel. Make it something that points that like they're here and they're running this way and you lay it out in front of them. And you're saying, I see you running through that point, right? Because you want, you want to encourage the grace of God and encourage the growth of God and tell them, I, like, I see how far you've come. It's like yelling them that they're split, what their split time is if they're in a race. Hey, that, that mile was four minutes and 47 seconds. Go, 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 right? Because there's like, yeah. Does that make sense? Only if you're a runner, I guess. Okay. It's, yeah, really fast. Yeah. Yeah, well, I do marathons and golf carts. Okay, so <clears throat> it's edification, and it glorifies God. Now, I don't believe every time you affirm somebody, you have to explicitly state the gospel or that only God is great, right? Like, I, I don't think you need to say, say, hey, you know, um, that food you brought to that small group meeting we had, like— like the Lord was moving in you. Like I, like I could, I can see the grace of God, like it, right? And, and there's nothing good in you, but in the grace of God, those brownies, those brownies were the right amount of gooey and it just, you could just tell everybody enjoyed them and it was, it was great. So praise God, right? Praise God. Like you, like you can go too far with that, right? Where it just becomes religious talk and it's just like, you're really just like theologically virtue signaling, Right? And, but you do want, you do want to point, in, in honoring the person, in praising the person, you want it to echo praise to God. So at least that means that what you say should be the truth. It shouldn't be flattery. It should point to something noble, right? Because think about this. Does anybody know what, what, what Billy Graham said when he was asked on national television, what he thinks God's going to say to him? Right? Like, so he was like kind of in the height of his career. All these people had come to Jesus. He'd been in all these countries. He preached to millions of people. And he's like sitting on like 60 minutes or something. And the person's like, you know, Billy Graham. And he goes through like a bunch of things Billy Graham had done. He's like, what does Billy Graham, like when you die, you think you believe you're going you're gonna to be before God. Like, what are you hoping God says to you? Right? And Billy Graham always, always the Bible says, right? Billy Graham, just without skipping a beat, said exactly what every Christian ought to say, right? He said, I'm hoping he says to me, what? Well done, good and faithful servant, right? Okay. We're all, all of us who are believers are living our entire lives for an affirmation. Do you understand? Our whole life. It's all, it's all, I mean, like, so, so, so all you, so, I mean, yeah, God's going to give you more than that. But, like, but that's, the, that's the hope. The hope is that you, you come into the presence of God and by the grace of God and the glory of Christ and the work of God in you, you stand before him and he doesn't, and he doesn't say, right? Like he doesn't say, there's nothing good in you. And only because of the death of Christ will I even look at you, but you get to come in. Now that, there's a level on which that is true, right? The Bible absolutely teaches that. The wages of sin of death, you're, you're I mean, like there's nothing that you could commend yourself before God. But that's not what Jesus teaches us to expect God to say if we've come to Christ. Because the work of propitiation, the taking away of our sins, is put away, and his fatherly gaze comes upon us, and he draws us in as his stewards and sons, his servants, who are also his sons and daughters, and we, we walk in the Spirit, and we we live in the commission and we fight for the gospel and we seek to grow in godliness and we fail and we quit, but sometimes we get back on the track and we get some encouragement and we get there. And in the end, what we're hoping for is, well done. 
right? It's not, it's, it's not about fault finding. He, it's, it's apparently at that point, it's about an affirmation, right? And there's no evidence that we're supposed to wait until then to get our first Christian affirmation, right? Maybe it should be our millionth. It'll probably be the best one. But once you, if your words meet that definition of affirmation, which I think is a theologically correct one, then you can hardly affirm too much. But it is very easy to affirm too little. I'd be willing to argue that no matter how positive a person you generally are, once you narrow down affirmation to targeted, edifying, truthful statements that praise a person as you glorify God. They're targeted like that. And they're not just whatever you want to say that will make people think you're nice. That none of us probably have a ministry of affirmation like we could have. That all of us could grow incredibly in this. And remember, this is our main job. Everything we do boils down to this all the time, everywhere, everything, every gift, every ministry, every moment, right? You can think about it a little bit like rain, okay? So everybody, everybody you walk past is like a, like a Wisconsin cornfield, right? And affirmation is like rain. And you can go for a while between rains. But, but like you need rain. Hu- human beings long for security and they long to know things are okay and they long to know that they're on the right track and they're not sure and even when they, they seem pretty self-assured, they're not. Like I, like, I spent a good portion of my life seeking to become psychologically entirely independent of the need of affirmation of anyone, okay? Now, that's probably not psychologically healthy, okay? But when I went to university, I went to university as a Christian. There were only two other con- professing Christians on campus, we didn't have a staff worker, and I was at a, a campus of 10,000 people who were drinking and sleeping their way to wherever, and, and I had mostly just professors that ridiculed Christian faith, and I was 18 years old, okay? And so I stepped into a community where every single person disapproved of me by default. Everybody in power disapproved of me openly. All of my peers disapproved of my lifestyle. Everyone disapproved of me. Everywhere I went, it was obvious Every time I said no to go to that drinking party, and every time I said I'm going to read my Bible in the middle of the day, and every time I said in class something that wasn't atheistically affirming or whatever, like it was, it was clearly displayed in no uncertain terms that I was universally disapproved of. And there's like, there's only a certain amount of defense mechanisms that work for that, right? You have to, I was, I was like 20 years at least from knowing who I was strong enough to like for that not to bother me, right? And so like I, I did everything I knew in Christ in as gospel-centered a way as I could to say, all of my affirmation comes from Jesus. Every bit of it. I have to, there's got to be enough affirmation coming from Jesus that I don't need any from these people. And they can say whatever they want about me, and I don't care. Right? And I feel like God has used that providentially in my life. I've, I've had to be very disagreeable in lots of situations and said, I'm not doing that. We're not going in that direction. And every once in a while, my wife has to tell me that, like, I'm not your mother, and I'm not one of your old university professors. We're on the same team because I'll just get I'll just get disagreeable when I don't need to be right, but but for all that work right when people in my life have affirmed me in a, this way, it's like getting rained on, man. As like a thirsty little piece of corn, like I mean I've worked hard to be that like kind of wheat you can grow in Sudan that's like super drought resistant, 
right? And I feel like I'm, I, I feel like I've achieved that. Like I feel like I'm a drought-resistant, affirmational person. But man, I can still take more rain. You know what I mean? Like, and everybody can. And it's amazing how strong people will become with a little rain, with just a little affirmation. And, and it's hard to do. Like, there's, we have these inhibitions about it, like, that will look stupid. It feels weird coming out of our mouths. And, like, there are all these little blocks. It's, like, the same reasons we don't really sing wholeheartedly oftentimes in worship. There are these inhibitions that we have that are, like, social, psychological inhibitions, and we let them rule us. That's just another one of those, your greatest battles are inside of you. Knowing how to be expressive rightly is one of the most difficult things in human experience. It's one of the things we have to grow up into. And and it only works through practice. Get out there and start affirming people, like, constantly. And, like, just think about, like, think about what it's like to be them and think about what could be happening in their life and think about what you might be able to say and maybe you're going to be wrong and be like, and sometimes you need to to share it like the new charismatics share prophecy. Like, I'm feeling like this might be right. And then just say it. Or, like, I'm picturing this about you. Is that right? Right? That's just another way of, trying to affirm people on the basis of your intuition because you haven't noticed anything concrete enough at that moment to say anything else about. Well, and sometimes it's the gift of prophecy, but sometimes it's just intuitional affirmation, which is great, right? Now, there's actually a bigger issue than this, just that like our work is affirmation. A lack of affirmation actually is a robbing from God of his own worship. Okay, so um, let me read this quote from John Piper that is in the foreword to the book um, Practicing Affirmation by Sam Crabtree. If you are affirmationally deficient, that book by Sam Crabtree is, is very helpful, especially if you're a more analytical, disagreeable person um, because he really breaks down theologically the imperative of affirmation and that it's not man-pleasing and that it's not pride-creating, but that it is divinely glorifying. Okay, and he says, this is what Piper says in the introduction. The point of being created in the image of God is that human beings are destined to display God. That's what images do. The point of being redeemed by Jesus and renewed after the image of our creator is to recover this destiny. If God is sovereign and every good gift is from above, then not praising the good in others is a kind of sacrilege and soul sickness. When our mouths are empty of praise for others, it is probably because our hearts are full of love for self. Cranks, misfits, and malcontents are so full of self that they scarcely see, let alone celebrate, the simple beauties of imperfect virtue and others, in others. Or to say it differently, I need this book. I want to end there so that we have enough time to do stuff, but um, if we come to worship and we sing on Christ the solid rock I stand and we sing all the songs we like. And then we don't turn to our neighbor and say something affirmational to them when we see something that we can affirm. We're living in a contradiction. There is nothing more evidence of the glory of God than his work in his own image bearers. And there is nothing more central to that work than the work of redemption through Christ, which brings transformation, which is bound up in the behavior, attitudes, and lives of his image bearers who are redeemed by faith. And so in some ways, the most practical and and the most centrally pinnacle way of worshiping God is to rightly affirm the work of God in others. 
And lastly, what it also does is it prepares people to hear the stuff they don't want to hear. Right? Because we've talked about High Point being a teaching church. Well, that means coaching, first of all, and you can't coach people without affirming them. You've got it, like, you've you got to correct stuff, but then you've got to say, you did it right that time. You did it right that time. And you need, like, 15 you did it right that time after you corrected them for them to get the muscle memory and the functional memory. Like, oh, I think I know how to do this. Right? But it also, when you affirm somebody, they're more, re- they're more ready to listen to what you want to correct because they know that you see the good and the bad. That you see all of them. And that you're not pinish- pigeonholing them. If I, do, if I walk up to you and I just criticize you, we haven't talked in months, you might think that's all I see in you. And that's all you are to me. And you might even believe that's all you are to God. But if I've affirmed you and other people have affirmed you and you know that what you're seen as, but there's something that's going to hurt you and there's something we fear for you that's bound up in something in your life, then I can speak to that and you could say, thank you. Because you're not feeling insecure. You're not feeling lost. You're not feeling like you don't know where you are. You're not feeling like you might be worthless. What you, what you know is, is that everybody wants you to, to run the race after Jesus. And what I'm saying to you is, Here's your Gatorade cup. This sin you haven't taken off is entangling you so you can't run right. Let's take it off. And so affirmation both coaches people forward in the teaching they need to receive, and it also prepares their hearts for the teaching they need to receive. Listen, a teaching church where you come and you hear hard messages that really make you go, and you feel that like like Christian workout, right? that isn't full of a congregation of people constantly affirming each other becomes a very ugly, self-righteous, dirty, crushing place. And people who are feeling weak don't thrive there. They don't thrive. People who are kind of like tough, a little legalistic naturally, they come from kind of tough homes, they want to hear it straight. Like there's a certain personality profile that does well if like I just yell at people all the time. Right? But there's a lot of people that don't. Especially people who are from contexts that feel like everybody's always disapproving of them. Right? Insert multi-ethnicity point here, right? Or immigrant point here. And so what we need to do is we need to focus on all of us having a ministry of encouragement because that's the only kind of ministry there is in Christianity. The only kind of ministry there is is a ministry of encouragement. Its effect is edification, the building up of others. And that produces what the Bible calls maturity and life and unity and becoming everything we were ever meant to be. And so as you talk about in your breakouts and you think about your ministries and you think about like what kind of crackers you want to order next month for the like two-year-olds, always start with this. After Jesus is king, God has a word of affirmation for us in Christ. And then our work is a work of encouragement for the edification of others. How can we do that best? Does that make sense? Let's pray and then we'll split up. Father, as much as we want to be a church known for many different things, God, will you please help us to always come back to the most fundamental things that you've taught us all through the scriptures and that we exist to edify, to build up, to strengthen others, and that we do this by encouraging them. And one of the main ways we have to encourage them is by affirming them. We pray that you'd help us to have a ministry of that, that you would, you would help us to overcome and fight against our inhibitions. We pray that one of the ways where we all grow in sanctification is that the inhibition to hold us back from affirmation would be destroyed in our lives. We pray that affirmation would flow from us as easily as criticism does right now. 
And we pray that the, that the inhibition that now stands in front of our mouths at the moment of affirmation would move over to criticism. And that we would be so inhibited in the gospel to negatively and derogatorily criticize. And that, and that the, the flowing, the freeness by which the flesh criticizes, we would have that same freeness in our spirit to affirm and help us to start now and help us to practice and help us to change the entire feel of this church in it. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys are fantastic. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us online on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps that are like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or otherwise share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways that we have to reach new listeners. So until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.